scripture this morning is from Matthew 21, 28 through 32. Jesus says, What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe in him. This is God's word. Amen. So good morning. Good to see you. I feel like I'm afraid the world's going to like tip on its axis this way because there's about five times as many of you on this room as there is on this side, but that's okay. So if you feel, if you feel yourself sliding, just like hang in there and we'll be okay. All right. So uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here. We continue uh, this morning in a series that we've been doing this fall on the kingdom parables of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Uh, and I, and I'm, I've really enjoyed uh, this time together uh, looking at these stories. Everybody loves the stories of Jesus. But there's a, there are a particular group of stories where Jesus is trying to illustrate for us what he means and what the Bible means by this idea of kingdom. Uh, this really important biblical word, kingdom. Now what we've said as we've gone along together is that the gospel is not just a doctrine. Believing the gospel creates a culture, a way of living together among those who believe it that is different different from the way the world normally works different from the way the world normally acts and feels and thinks and when that difference becomes visible when it becomes concrete that's the kingdom so jesus taught us to pray your kingdom come and pastors and theology professors professionals debate exactly what that means but the easiest answer to me is to see it connected to the very next part of that prayer and we know, most of us anyway, know we pray your kingdom come. And what comes next? Your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom comes when we together live the life of heaven on the earth. When we are so different in the way we, in the way we live and think and feel and talk and, and work and so forth. When we're so different from what the world knows that we no longer fit in. That is the kingdom coming. And so to become a Christian, you have to forsake one set of allegiances and priorities and adopt an entirely different new set of values. You have to unlearn your way of doing life and learn the new way of Jesus. It really is that big a deal. It's not just a flippant decision you make. It's something much bigger than that. Now, we really shouldn't be surprised to hear that, though. When missionaries move to a foreign country... Uh, they, you know, they're usually told that it goes something like this. Hey, for the first three to five years of your being, you know, a missionary here, all you're going to do, the only thing, you're not going to really accomplish anything. All you're going to do is just learn how to adapt and live in this new culture that's so different from the one you've left. And so there's this acclimation period of where that, you know, you have to figure out what going to the grocery store looks like and all of these things because it is such a different experience. Uh, you know, but it's not just like something big like that. I meet people all the time. I know people who've moved from the north. 
here to Polk County who have gone through like massive, like disorienting culture shock. Because even in our country, different parts of the country, if you go from one to something that's very different, it, it feels like you're, it almost feels like you're in a different place. People talk differently. You know, you can't just order tea. You have to sweet or unsweet, whatever, whatever it might be, right? There's all of these things that you have to navigate and figure out. And, and so, again, this shouldn't make, you know, a lot of, it should make a lot of sense to us that there's this process of having to learn a whole new way of doing life and unlearn all the old ways of doing life. And that just happens in our lives. It happens even more so in matters of faith, where to become a Christian, you really do have to go through this process. And it's a lifelong process of unlearning the way you've always done things and relearning the ways of Jesus. The biblical word for that is repentance. So according to Jesus, the only way to enter into the kingdom is through repentance. In Mark's gospel, chapter 1, Jesus says this, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's the same in Matthew and, and in the other gospels as well, where you see repentance and faith are two sides of one coin. They go together. In fact, there in Mark and, and, and in other places, repentance comes first. It's repent and believe. Repent and believe. So you repent, you turn away from your sins, you turn away from your normal, and you believe. You turn toward God. You turn towards the new thing that's coming in Jesus. And I'll be honest with you, one of the problems that the American church faces, the reason there's so little power, the reason there's so little difference right, difference among people of faith and people who do not have faith in our culture is because the church is full of people who have believed but never repented. They've believed, but then their life just carried on pretty much as it was before, but that's not the way it works. There is no faith in the Bible without repentance. It's, it's either both or neither of them at all. But here's the other thing. It's not like you just repent once either. When you first become a Christian, okay, whew, I got that out of the way. Now I can move on to other things. No, that act of repentance that gets you into the kingdom, according to Mark chapter 1, leads you into a lifetime of continual repentance. So Martin Luther's theological revolution that became the Protestant Reformation began with the idea all of life is repentance. Sempre reformanda, right, is, the, is the, uh, one of the battle cries and mottos of the, of the Reformation. Always changing is what that means. Because they believed, and so do we, that you never stop repenting. You never arrive. You never make it in the Christian life, and there's no, no more growth and no, nothing else to learn. There's always more to learn, and as you learn, you change. And as you believe you know, deep, more deeply or believe you know, in a slightly different way or learn new things, you, you take that learning, you take that belief, and you turn it into change. That's the Christian life. And so the question for us, as we come to this text this morning is, are you different today than you were a year or two ago because of how your faith is growing? Do the people who know you best, could they look at you and say, gosh, man, I really see all kinds of growth and change in you in this area. Is change one of the marks of your life, or are you just the same person you've always been? Those are intimidating questions to ask yourself, but absolutely critical because the gospel when it comes to bear upon a life, it creates a repenting people. The church should be a repenting people. And that's what this text is about. Look with me here at Matthew chapter 21. 
we see two things. You're, I've been out of town this week a little bit, and so you get the good fortune of having a much, uh, much shorter sermon this morning. So are the famous last words of every preacher who's ever preached. But at least only two points instead of three, and you'll see there, we're just going to make two points, two observations about this text. We want to see these two sons as they're side by side here, and we want to just ask what makes the difference between the two. And the answer to that question is that only one repents. Repentance is the difference, but only one repents. And so the second thing we want to do is we want to look at what Jesus means by prostitutes coming in first ahead of the others. We want to see why is it easier for the one who does repent than for the one who doesn't repent. So if repentance is the difference, we want to make that case, but then we want to ask, but, but why is it that the one son and not the other has an easier time with this, this issue of repentance, okay? So let's just let's look here together, beginning first with the two sons. Let's, di- let's kind of dissect the parable a little bit, because we have some work to do here to understand the teaching. The father of these two boys is presumably the owner of a vineyard. And so if that's the case, then it's out of the ordinary to begin with that he would ask his sons to work in the vineyard. The, the servants would have done that. The sons of the family probably would not. And that may explain some of the first son's hesitancy. If you look in verse 29, his response to the father's request is a brash refusal. I will not. Now, I would love to know, dads, the last time you asked your kids to do something and you got that, I will not, how that went in your house. It would have been much, much worse here because in this oriental patriarchal society, that sort of response would have been absolutely unheard of. It is insubordinate and offensive, but not just to the father, to the entire community as well. It's just something you just would never do that. And so this boy is really brash in his disobedience to his father. And so the father, in, a, in really in an amazing move, moves on to the second son without much addressing his first son. And the second son replies there in verse 30 with the polite, I will, sir. Go and work. I will not. Second boy, go and work. I will, sir. And the sir there in the Greek is the word kurios, which means Lord. It is the appropriate way to address someone in authority over you. And so what happens here is there is a characterization of the two boys that begins to emerge. And the best way I know to put it to you, I told the early service, this kind of dates me, so it makes me nervous. But um, People, as they're listening to this story, there are clues in the story to how the story is meant to be understood in the same way that when I was a kid, it seemed like all of the stories were cowboy and Indian stories, right? And if you had a cowboy and Indian story, it was very clear to everybody who the good guys and who the bad guys were. Who were the good guys? The cowboys. The Indians were the bad guys. Or if you want to go a, you know, a few years ahead of me, even, if you can imagine, it used to be back in like the silent picture show days, Right, The way you would do this is there would be people dressed in white, there would be people dressed in black. And of course everybody knew the people dressed in white, they're the good guys, right? And the people dressed in black are the bad guys, just by virtue of, of you know, there are just clues there. It's the same here in this text. That's what the commentators say. There are these two boys. Uh, the first son, everybody would have understood who's listening, and we should too, he was, he was the bad son. He was, he was the guy dressed in black. Now that's an oversimplification. But there are some clues here. He is the independent, color-outside-the-lines type of person, strong-willed and disobedient and so forth. The second son is the good son. He's the guy dressed in white. He's respectful and compliant and eager to please. And the commentators all say that if you were listening to this story in first century Palestine, you would have understood that that's the case. But you also would have understood that the first son in the story Jesus tells was probably the younger of the two brothers, and the second was the older. He's probably the firstborn of the family. 
And that makes sense, doesn't it, of our experience? So they point out that the father would not have gone to the eldest son first because of his place in the family. The firstborn son was held in high esteem by the rest of the family. The rest of the siblings, in effect, would have worked for him, which sounds like a great idea to me, some firstborn son. So the father would have started out in the mailroom, so to speak, and made his way up the organizational chart. That's what, that's what the commentators say. But also, the way Jesus describes these two boys makes sense of what we know about birth order. Firstborns are generally more serious and more dutiful and more eager to please their parents than the other children in the family are. And so as you read this, you should have all of that in mind, and it should make you think of another parable Jesus told about two brothers. In Luke chapter 15, where the same two characters can be found. Because again, this is, this is a, a, a well-known story for, you know, for this time. And in that story, there's a younger brother who is wild and carefree and selfish, not a team player. And he insults his father by asking for his inheritance early and then irresponsibly spends it on all, all on prostitutes and parties. And then there's the older brother there, of course, who stays at home and picks up the slack and does everything the father asks and so forth. Now, in both Luke 15 and here in Matthew 21, the two boys describe two different groups of people who are orbiting around Jesus' ministry. That's what you have to understand. The younger brother, who is the first boy in this, in this story, is representative of the irreligious, immoral crowd that is made up of tax collectors and prostitutes in the general sinners category of people, the bad people. The older brother who is the second brother in this story, is representative of the religious leaders and the Pharisees, the good people. And here's the thing, the surprise then, the surprise of the story is that even though the younger boy at first says, no way, I'm not doing that. It says, verse 29, look there, he changed his mind and he went and he did what the father asked of him. But the older son the one who was the obedient, dutiful guy, initially said, I'll do it, sir. He, there is even respect there. He, he didn't follow through and do what was asked of him. And Jesus is using this story to explain why it is that the rabble and the riffraff were embracing his ministry. And, and all of the, you know, they were, they were toasting the kingdom everywhere they went. Jesus is eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And they're, and they're just toasting in the kingdom. While at the same time, the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the establishment and the people in power are meeting in back rooms and plotting to kill him. And it was because only the first group was willing to repent. The phrase verse 29 the brother changed his mind. That's, that's literally the word repent. So the younger son was the bad son, but he repented. And that's what matters. And so here, here we have what I told you last week. You came back. So many of you came back. That's great. I told you part two is this week. And here we have the first becoming last and the last first. Do you remember that from last week? I said at the beginning and end of that parable of the laborers in the field, Jesus uses this Phrase, many who are first will be last, and the last who are first, to describe the way it works in the kingdom. So here we have the first son comes in last, and the second son finishes first, which is representative of the Pharisees and the religious leaders being left out, and the tax collectors and the prostitutes coming in, because this kingdom that Jesus is describing to us is a kingdom of grace. The kingdom is the real upside down. Everything that is, by the way, 
we reason in the world is not in the kingdom. Everything that gets you in and gets you ahead keeps you out and keeps you back. Our cultural values and norms and the values and norms of the kingdom do not mesh. They clash, which is why the only way into the kingdom is to repent. And the only way to live in this kingdom, this sphere of God's power and love and freedom and joy and all this, is to keep on repenting over and over again, day after day after day. So let's stop before we go any further and define what we mean by that word, by repentance. Because here's the thing, it's not just confession. It's more than confession. And here's what I got to say, because I got to talk to the home, home crowd for a minute. Because in our, in our circles, in our theological circles, we do a great job of confession. We love to confess our sins. And we love to talk about what awful, miserable wretches we are. We're self-righteous about how much we can talk about what big sinners we are. But that's not repentance. That's confession. Confession admits to being wrong, but then it doesn't really worry about trying to change. But repentance is change. It's a change that begins as a change in the way you think or the way you believe. That, and then these new beliefs, these new ideas, these new thoughts begin to work themselves into your heart so that you begin to change the way you live. The younger son changed. You see that? It's right there, right? He said, no, I'm not going. But then he went. He reconsidered. He thought it out. He changed his mind. And that's what it takes to get into the kingdom and to live in the kingdom. You have to know that you don't know it all, that you don't have it figured out, that there's always more to learn, that there's something you can learn in every situation and to be seeking to learn and to, and to deepen your belief as much as you can and be changing the way you live on the basis of what you're learning and what, what you're believing. That's the kingdom person. The fool is the one who, you know, is the know-it-all. But the wise person is the one who knows that they don't know, that they, that they, they always think beyond their initial reaction to things. They're always processing, and, and when confronted with new ideas or new beliefs, they, they take those things in and they consider and they weigh it out and they work it into their hearts and they're humble enough to consider and then change accordingly as, they're, as they become convinced of the things they're being taught. You see, the tax collectors and the prostitutes weren't left out because of their sin. Isn't that great news? And the Pharisees and the religious leaders weren't included because of their obedience. So, man, this is the privilege of what I get to do every week, to stand before a group of, you know, 150 to 200 people twice and to tell you this great, great news. Listen, friends, sin cannot keep you out of heaven. But obedience can't get you in. What matters is Repentance. Do you have a lifestyle of faith and repentance? Are you constantly learning more and more about Jesus and changing your life accordingly? That's the question the parable is asking. Look at verse 31. Which of the two did the will of his father? The answer is the second? No. The answer is the first. Why? Because, because, because he was, you know, the good son and his brother was the bad son? No, it's the opposite. He was the bad son, but he repented. And it's the repentance that made the difference. Now, before we move on to the next part, let me just make a couple of applications to our lives, to our church, uh, for just a minute, because I think these are important things to consider. And the first thing that I would say to you is, as you wrestle with this text, uh, the, uh, 
again, my privilege, because I know and I pray this lands on some hearts the way I think uh, it needs to this morning. And I just want to say to you, if this text is true, and of course we believe it is, then your past does not determine your future. The mistakes you've made up to this moment in this room this morning, they're, they're not the big thing. No matter what your life has been like up to this point in this text, in this moment of meeting with God, what matters is not everything to this point, but whether you learn what you're meant to learn here in this moment and allow God to speak into it and then go from this place making the changes that are necessary. You can't change yesterday, but you can change tomorrow through repentance. So we need to learn desperately how to do this. But then the second thing, if repentance is really that important, one of the things you got to notice here is that it says prostitutes are better repenters than Pharisees. Now, that's hard, isn't it? But if you disagree, you're not arguing with me. You're just arguing with what Jesus said. It's right there. Listen to it again, speaking to the Pharisees. Verse 32, John, the Baptist, John came to you and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they believed him. And even when you saw it, you still did not believe and afterward changed your minds. But they did. And so repentance is the condition of kingdom citizenship. Religious people, this is, this is one of the things that we have to really sit with this morning, is the fact that religious people generally have a harder time repenting. We're going to come back to why that is in just a minute. That's the whole second part of the sermon. But then third, if the church is a repenting people... If the way into the kingdom is to be a person who's continually rethinking and and reordering your life, and if the church is a repenting people, and if prostitutes are better repenters than Pharisees, then guess what? Then we should expect the church to be filled with more prostitutes than Pharisees. Tim Keller's talked about this. He said it's curious or alarming, I would say possibly damning, that our churches seem to be filled with the types of people who are repelled by Jesus' ministry, while the people who flock to Jesus typically are absent or feel marginalized in our churches. And that's backwards. It's a problem. If we're preaching grace, the reality is grace is good news to the sinner, and it's bad news for the self-righteous. And so a gospel culture of grace should attract the morally bankrupt and the sexually broken. The church is for sinners, And the church should be full of sinners, amen? Listen, the church is full of sinners. (laughs) And so if that's you, welcome home. Now here's the thing. This younger son, the first in the parable, he repented, but the older brother didn't. And that's what matters. Irreligious people have to repent to get into the kingdom, but so do religious people. For religious people, it's harder. That's the point Jesus is making. But the question that we want to ask and finish up our time together by answering is why? Why is it easier for irreligious people to repent than for religious people? Jesus says, verse 31, tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom ahead of you. It doesn't say that the religious folks don't get in. We know they did, many of them, but they get in after the tax collectors and the prostitutes. They get in, they get in, you know, down the road. Sinners flock to Jesus. Uh, his disciples and his his most immediate followers were made up a bunch of made up of a bunch of morally questionable characters like Matthew, who was a tax collector, and a fraud, and and um, you know a traitor, and Mary, who 
was a woman who was a known adulterer and so forth. These kinds of people, just to name a few. That's who, that's who really was in Jesus' immediate circles. And then there, the chapter ends, and we know just from reading the Gospels, then there are the chief priests and the Pharisees, and we're told here at the end of chapter 21 that they perceived that the parables were he, that he was speaking about them. And can I just tell you, it didn't go over well. Because it ends with them, again, in their back rooms, making deals, conspiring to arrest and to kill him. Why? See, why this dynamic? Why were sinners drawn to him and moralizers repelled? Why do prostitutes go in, like it says in verse 31? First, why did they seem to repent so easily when it came so hard to the religious leaders? And Jesus answers the question in the very next verse, in verse 32. He says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. Talking to the Pharisees. But tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Now, what does all that mean? And I want you to focus there on the one phrase in that verse, the way of righteousness. That's what's really important. What did Jesus mean when he said, John came to you in the way of righteousness? We could restate it. John came to you to show you the way to being right with God. So righteousness, this really important biblical word here, refers to something that's right or straight as opposed to something that's misshapen or out of place. And so the ministry of John the Baptist was to prepare the people for the coming Messiah. His message was a message of repentance, especially to the religious establishment. So he said these, I mean, John was just a character, man. He said, he, he said it pretty straight to the religious leaders of his day. They would come out to him, and here's how he would address them in Matthew 3. You brood of vipers! Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, he would say to them. So he's calling the religious leaders and the religious establishment to faith and repentance. But that passage in Matthew 3 is important because it goes on and, and he says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. See, John came to call people to repentance in order that they might be made right with God through the, the coming Messiah. But the Pharisees and the religious people didn't think they needed to be to, to repent because they presumed they were already right with God simply because of their ethnic and, and religious identity. And they were wrong. See, the message of the Bible is that we are all, we're all sinners, no matter what cultural or religious heritage we come from. No one is righteous. No, not one, Romans 3 says. We're all under the wrath of God because of our sin. We all, every one of us in the room needs to be forgiven. But that's only part of it. What we really need, we need a righteousness so that we can confidently stand before God and know that we are his beloved. That's what righteousness means in the Bible. It, it, it refers to knowing more, God, that, that God doesn't just forgive you. He delights in you. His face beams like the sun when he thinks of you. That's rightness with God. That's the kind of relationship that you and I need. To have with him, to have the kind of peace and joy and steadfastness that we're meant to live with. Well, you have to know, you have to know God's smile. You have to know that you're living every day under his smile. That's what, that's what we mean by that word. Well, but it says there is a way of righteousness. And it isn't what you think. And again, here, here is the joy of doing what I get to do. And I, I've just been praying all week, Father, cause this to land upon our hearts the way that it needs to land. Because the way of righteousness Jesus' message, John's message, the message of the Bible is this, is that it is not your rightness that makes you right with God. It's not your rightness 
that makes you right with God. Not your right behavior, not your right pedigree, not your right family, not your right theology. That's not what makes you right with God. All of our rightness is as filthy rags, the prophet says. The standard of righteousness is 100% obedience, perfect obedience to all that God is and has spoken. And it's a standard that no one can meet. No righteousness that any of us try to perform in the room meets that standard. No one except the man, God, Jesus Christ, who was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Jesus died upon a cross so that we might be forgiven of our sin. He lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father so that he might earn the record of righteousness that we need and then give it to us as a gift so that all Jesus is and all that he has done is credited to us in our heavenly account. That's the gospel. Isn't that good news? But the only thing that can make you right with God is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. In order to get the righteousness of Jesus, the only qualification, in order to get it, you have to know that you don't have any of your own. In other words, religious people repent of their sins, but then use all of their energy to build a record of righteousness that is theirs. Christians repent of sin and righteousness. And so to become a Christian, you have to, you have to repent of all of your righteousness projects. Do you know you have those? You know what I mean by that? Like your righteousness projects? Like your kids? You can make your kids a right? Ugh. It's a terrible thing to do, but you can do it. Or you can make your work a righteousness project. Now hear me. Listen, please don't stop doing good and loving people. Please be known for that. Okay? Can we do that? Does that sound like a good idea? Please don't stop trying to do good and love people. That's not, I'm, that's not what I'm saying. But, but please stop doing those things to build a spiritual resume. You don't get righteousness by trying for it. You get it by not trying for it. It's a gift that you have to receive, and that's why the prostitutes are a step ahead of the Pharisees. They know they don't have any righteousness. They've been told that their whole life by the religious people. They have no good works to repent of, and so all they have is faith, and that's their advantage. All they had to do is repent of their sin. But the religious leaders and the people like us, they have works. <laughs> and because they have works, they don't need faith. And so before they can repent of their sin, they have to repent of their righteousness. And it's hard, it's hard listen, it's hard to, to turn away from the bad things that you do. But it's so, so, so much harder to turn away from trusting in the good things that you do. And yet you're not a Christian until you repent of your bad and also your good. And then you repent of your repentance and trust in Jesus Christ and not yourself for the rightness that you need to stand before God rightly and if you want to dig into your own heart about how you're doing on what we're talking about this morning ask yourself questions like this how hard is it for you to admit you're wrong how quick are you to defend yourself in an argument how bristly do you get when people question your decisions how anxious are you about what others think of you how flexible are you are you a learner or when change is suggested, do you become more entrenched in your position? See, those are the kinds of things that you can do to kind of work this out and think, how am I doing with all of these things? David Bernard was a missionary to Native Americans in the 1740s. He died of tuberculosis at 29 after going, he went hard for all, for, for you know, 10 to 15 years of his life. I mean, so much so that Jonathan Edwards uh, put 
the, his diary and his collected works because he was so impressed by this man. He, he lived with him for a while. Uh, but David Brennard had a spiritual awakening in the years that led up to his death. And so reflecting back on his life in his late 20s, he, he thought back about the time when he was around 20. Here's what he wrote. He said, when I was about 20 years of age, I was engaged more than ever in the duties of religion. I became strict and watchful over my thoughts, words, and actions. Listen, and I thought I must be very seriously religious. Though I often confessed to God that I, of course, deserve nothing. Listen, don't miss it. Yet, still, I harbored a secret hope of recommending myself to God by all these duties and all this morality. When my heart seemed full of love and faith, I felt that God would be affected by that. God's going to be impressed with me. In other words, he said, I healed my myself with my duties. I healed myself with my duties. Now, I would ask you, do you harbor any secret hopes of gaining God's acceptance through your works? Are you trying to recommend yourself to God still? Do you believe the solution to your sin is your obedience and your duties and not God's mercy? You've got to dig into your heart and find the answer. It's a matter of life and death, eternal life is at stake in these things. And Brainerd re realized, you know, he realized, you know, I've spent my life doing all of these things, being a missionary to Native American people and just giving my life to the Lord. And he just woke up to the rally. He said, gosh, the energy, the energy in my life for all of this stuff I've done, the motivation for all of the good that he was doing was to try to do something that God would be impressed by so that he would earn the righteousness that, it, that he knew he needed. He wasn't resting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is ours by faith. But what about you? What about you? Are you resting? Because if you are, here's what it would sound like. There's an old Isaac Watts hymn, and I don't know, it's, the language is so similar, I wonder if these two got together at some point, but Isaac Watts, he wrote this, he said, no more, my God. I boast no more of all of the duties I have done. I quit the hopes I held before to trust the merits of thy son. This parable puts a simple question to every one of us. Have you quit the hope of earning your salvation through your good works and begun instead to trust completely in the merits of Jesus Christ as your righteousness before the, the Father? If so, you see, if so, then repentance will become as natural to you as breathing in and breathing out. Because what are you doing? See, what are you having to do when you repent? You're having to say, I was wrong. And I'm trying to change that. But if your whole, see, if your whole thing is, I've got to be right, if rightness, if your rightness is the solution to righteousness in your life, then you'll never be able to admit you were wrong. But as soon as you realize that your rightness is not your rightness, but that your rightness is predicated on your wrongness, and Jesus' righteousness for you, then it just becomes as natural as can be to say, you know what, I was wrong. You go through your life saying, yeah, I was wrong. And I need to fix that. I need to change that. And changing accordingly so you see do you see that so if righteousness is is in the right order in your life then repentance will become as natural to you as just breathing in and breathing out day after day moment by moment and that's good that's good 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 because remember jesus's words again in mark chapter one the time is fulfilled the kingdom of god is at hand repent and believe in the gospel amen let's pray so father we do ask that you do that in us, that you make us 
people who find repentance as easy as it is to breathe in and take a breath and to exhale and breathe it out. But we have to be honest with you that that is not the case with us most often. Most often we fight for our rightness. We defend it to the death. We, when confronted with the possibility that we could be wrong, we, we go down in flames because so important to us is the idea that, that we are right. And it's because we're glory robbers. We, we want righteousness to be something that we ourselves have earned so that we can take all the credit for it. We want, don't want it to be a gift because it's a gift. If it's a gift, then you get all the credit. You, you get all the glory and we get none. And we, we, our hearts don't like that. We want, to, we want to only enjoy things that we have earned for ourselves. And so um, that pride, Father, it's just what's destroying our lives. And so would you come in ways that we can't really even do? The Spirit, Spirit, come as we as Molly sang a little while ago and just do such a work in our hearts, gifting us with the gift of repentance that, that we would forsake not only the bad stuff, but the good stuff too. And embrace the way of righteousness that's revealed to us in the gospels. And that the result would be, we pray, that we would become people of immense joy and freedom and hope and love. That's the kind of fruit that we want to have in our life. And so come, meet us at this place and do that work in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The act of faith really is just that. It's coming to the cross because at the cross, the cross is uh, God's declaration to us of how costly we are to love. Look what it costs. Uh, for me, I had to die for you, so great was your sin. But it's also God's declaration of love to us because though the cost was great, he says, look at the willingness of my heart to pay whatever cost, to pay whatever price I must have to have you because I love you. And so this is heavy stuff this morning, this idea of repentance. So let me just remind you, put a smile on your face, cheer up. You're far, far worse than you think you are. But at the same time, at the same time, you're far, far greater love than you could ever dare imagine. That's the truth. That's what the cross says. And it's out of that humility that we, that we turn toward the Father. So if you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian, turn from your sin and turn from your righteousness and come to Jesus. But if you're here and you are, please keep turning from your sin. Keep turning from your righteousness and come to the one who speaks words like this to you. Here's the invitation that God, of God, that God gives you to say, look, come to me because this is my heart. So receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. God bless.